0: So, question for you, is knowledge truly power? Can we trust the math that knowing is indeed half the battle? If we know the good that we ought to do, does it follow naturally that we will do it? Last week, Pastor Scott preached from the Gospel of John, a message about the mission of the church about making disciples. He spoke about how the church, how our church, goes about making disciples. At United Baptist, we fulfill our mission by being a people that engage in and invite others to engage in regular and meaningful worship, fellowship, and service. And Pastor Scott laid out clearly not just what these three elements of disciple-making are, but also why the Christian practices them. We are saved, we make disciples, we worship, fellowship, and serve for the glory of God. So then, where does that leave us? I know that the Spirit of God was present among this body last week. I'm confident that he was moving among us, encouraging and convicting as he does, to bring us into conformity with the way of Christ and I hope and pray that we had willing ears and hearts softened to receive the implanted word. But taking in and applying God's word is not always an easy matter. We are broken people. And in our brokenness, even a clear word from God can sometimes be painful and challenging to deal with. Direct instruction can be received as a burden rather than a blessing. Thankfully, Christ knows this. And as we look a little further into John's record, we will see how Jesus responded to the confusion and distress of the disciples when they were struggling to receive some clear but hard words from their Lord. We're going to continue looking at our mission as Christians this morning. We have the how of disciple-making laid out for us and have been encouraged to engage in worship, fellowship, and service. Today we'll spend some more time focusing on the glory of God and on how such imperfect, distracted, dysfunctional, busy, and often unmotivated people as we are can have any hope of living this out faithfully throughout our lives. God, we trust in you. Pray that we would trust you in you more. We believe. Help our unbelief. We need to hear from you. We need you to open our eyes and our ears to hear from you. Be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin today where last week's message ended, with the heart. In Jesus' parable of the sower from Matthew 13, the different soils represent the different responses that we might have to the Word of God. These responses begin in the heart. And scripture has a lot to say about the heart, far more than we'll be able to cover this morning, but I want us to take some time and examine the different places our hearts can be and often are, so that we understand just what we're facing when given the commands of God, such as the command to go and make disciples. The heart is the center of our being. It is where our desires come from, where our values are rooted where our motivations are shaped. Proverbs 4.23 emphasizes this in its instruction to keep your heart, to guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And as Jesus' parable makes clear, the state of our hearts can range widely. We might talk about being lighthearted or heavyhearted. Scripture would describe the latter as being burdened or grieved in heart such as in Psalm 73. As I mentioned, our hearts are the seat of our desires, and they are drawn after or chase after those desires. In Deuteronomy 6, after Moses instructs the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He goes on to warn them. You shall not go after other gods the gods of the peoples who are around you. This is precisely what Israel does and it is what we do. We go after the things we desire. Often the things that others around us are holding up as desirable and we make them our gods. Our hearts desire and our hearts pursue our desires. Our hearts can also be bitter In our adult Sunday school class, we've been looking at just how common it is to allow bitterness into our hearts, at how prone we are to hold on to hurts and unresolved issues and let them take root, as we are warned against in Hebrews 12. Our hearts can be hard. Living with a heart that is hardened against the work of the Holy Spirit is a scary place to be, as Jesus' words regarding the Pharisees can attest. But just like bitterness, hard-heartedness is likely more common than we would think. It is often revealed in those areas of our lives that we are simply unwilling to give holy to the Lord, as is His due. Hard-heartedness may not define our lives, but as those called to be living sacrifices, our partial obedience will absolutely disrupt our lives as disciples of Christ, and this is not all. Beyond being grieved, Scripture speaks of being broken-hearted, both in a positive and a negative sense. It addresses a prideful heart. It warns us that at the core our hearts are deceitful and not easily understood. Our hearts can be quite messy places. And I can say with confidence this morning that in this room There are almost certainly hearts that fit each of these descriptions to some extent, and likely many that hold a combination of them at once. There's one more state of heart that I'm sure we've all experienced to some degree. It may come from trials, from questions, or from failures. And it might simply arise from bringing our tumultuous heart to church and sitting under the word of God. This is a troubled, In John chapter 13, our passage from last week, we're looking at the Last Supper. Our passage from last week was about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. After the meal, Jesus got up and washed the disciples' feet. And this is the beginning of a portion of Scripture that relates some of the final interactions that Jesus had with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. Toward the middle of the chapter... Jesus declares that one of his 12 closest followers will betray him. Then at the end of the chapter, he tells Peter, one of his closest disciples, that he would deny Jesus three times before the end of the night. I hope that we can put ourselves in the disciples' sandals this morning. This is a group of men who, for all their devotion, have no sense of proportion. Even having walked with Jesus for a few years at this point, having listened to his words, and even been sent out preaching them, they cannot wrap their minds around who Jesus is and what they are a part of. In their best moments, they profess Jesus to be the Christ, but the scope of their understanding about what their Lord is doing cannot stretch beyond a political revolution and an earthly kingdom. They have seen the most incredible miracles they might have been able to imagine, but they cannot begin to understand the fullness of what the kingdom of God's arrival meant for the world. And they would not accept Jesus' plain and repeated statements that his own death was the completion of this new covenant kingdom's advent on earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. Each three different times where Jesus told the disciples he would be killed and rise again. But the very thought overwhelmed the disciples to the point where they were afraid to ask him about it. And now, with all this confusion and lack of understanding weighing their hearts down, they've just been told that there was a traitor among them. They've been told that Jesus would be leaving them soon and that they could not follow him. And they've been told that the passionate and devoted Peter was soon to turn away from his rabbi. These men were troubled in heart. How do we know this for sure? Because Jesus knew it and addressed it directly. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus speaking, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Regardless of where we're at and what we're facing today, can we stop and celebrate this morning that our loving and compassionate Lord knows our hearts? Jesus knows exactly where we're at. He is not deceived by our deceitful hearts. He knows what we're trying to protect or hide behind our hard hearts. He understands just how painful the things are that are making us bitter or burdened in heart. He knows and he cares. What a mercy. And what a beautiful response Jesus gives here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is saying that the disciples have some agency here. They can affect the condition of their own hearts. And the remedy is that they would believe if the Lord is God and if Jesus is the Messiah. Then all these things that the disciples can't fathom or won't accept cannot interfere with the coming kingdom. Their lack of knowledge and understanding cannot nullify all the promises that Jesus has made about life under his care. And Jesus goes on to reassure them further, both stating that he is going to prepare a place for them and that he will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also but he also promises them the Holy Spirit the helper for the disciple while yet on earth and the one who's coming we know will so fundamentally change these men that they will go forth and preach to the nations suffering and dying joyfully for their Lord faith belief through the power of the Holy Spirit changed their world and through them God built the church by his word. It's the same for us. If God is who he says he is, if his promises are true, our questions and our struggles and our, and our troubled hearts are still there, but they won't stop what he's doing. They won't overcome his goodness in our lives. Continuing to look at John, there's more back and forth with the disciples. This doesn't clear everything up. There's more confusion. They still don't get it. Does it sound familiar? But there's also more instruction from Jesus, encouragement from Jesus. Some of it is still hard for his followers to understand and believe. Let's think again about the challenge of receiving instruction from God's word that seems so difficult to accept or live out that may indeed be hard to live out. Think of the fearful and confused questions of the disciples in chapters 13 and 14. Lord, who is it that would betray you? Lord, where are you going? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Philip essentially states that they must be missing something, that there must be more that they haven't seen of the Father. And if Jesus would show them, Then that would be enough. Judas, not Iscariot, wonders how, if in a little while the world will see him no more, is Jesus going to reveal the kingdom of God to the world? How is he going to give the world the Holy Spirit? And how is he going to enable the world to obey his commandments? Well, having just gone through the book of Acts, we know the answer to that one. But they don't, they are troubled. This is the lead-up to today's passage. It was a long one, I know. But I want us to hear it as the disciples must have. Perhaps we can best relate to the disciples by remembering times past when we've had similar questions to theirs. Or perhaps perhaps by thinking of the questions we might be struggling with now. Lord, what are you doing? What are you expecting of me? Lord, I hear what you're saying, but how do you expect me to live this out, to fit this in, to make this shift? Lord, what am I missing? Won't you just show me that thing that will clear this up? Lord, I'm just not feeling it right now. John chapter 15, verse 1 I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. If this seems like a bit of a clunky transition to our text this morning, it is meant to be a bit jarring. And I hope you'll keep it in mind. Part of Jesus' response to his worried and confused friends is to turn their thinking completely from their questions and instead to help them understand who he is. This is a response we would do well to be on the lookout for, look for in our own lives as we read the word of God and go to him in prayer. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is the seventh and last of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. Each one is a vivid picture of how we are to understand the person and role of Christ, our Savior and Lord. And each is a recasting of Israel's theology of worship and service to God. In saying, I am the true vine, Jesus is upending one of the cherished images that Israel had of itself. The Israelites envisioned themselves as a vine, the nation that was supposed to flourish and bring forth fruit, to be set apart in their righteous obedience to God's law. This was most dramatically emblemized, however you want to call it, visualized by the vine that surrounded the gate of the temple. 105 feet high, made of gold, added to by the rich and wealthy in their donations. And this is ironic, because God used similar imagery for Israel, but it was not a flattering picture. In both Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm chapter 80, we get the story of a vine that is diligently planted and tended, but that does not bear fruit. These are prophetic representations of Israel's turning away from God and abandoning his mission for them to bear fruit amongst the pagan nations. Here Jesus says, I am the true vine. What's the difference between a true vine and a false vine? A false vine looks like a vine, but it does not fulfill the purpose of a vine. A vine is supposed to bear fruit. Where Israel has failed to be a fruit-bearing vine... Jesus is about to bring forth the harvest to end all harvests. It goes on. My Father is the vine dresser. Jesus, especially in John, speaks so often of his relationship and interaction with the Father. Here, Jesus is making a plain statement My Father has planted me. I am the one sent by the Father, the one through whom the harvest will come. This is just one more of so many reminders and encouragements for the disciples. Jesus is the true vine that the father planted to do the work that Israel couldn't. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, that's not a very encouraging statement necessarily. It's hard truth. It's a hard line. But it's not meant to stand apart from the following verses, especially verse 3. Already, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There are three thoughts that I want to bring out of these two verses. The first is to recall last week's passage of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Peter, after kicking up a fuss at his master doing servant's work, finally takes it as an honor and swings to the opposite extreme. Exclaiming, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. John 13, verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Cleanness means the same both in chapter 13 and chapter 15. It is talking about purity of the heart. Not perfection. Perfection but being known as clean in the sight of God. And so chapter 15 is a repetition of his earlier assurance. But this time without thee, not every one of you, because Judas is no longer with them. This is the second thing to note. It's very likely that to some extent, Jesus has Judas in mind with the imagery of the branch that does not bear fruit. All through chapters 13 and 14 the disciples are expressing confusion and fear. They cannot understand what is happening. And as we so often do, they seem to be panicking a bit and trying to figure out what they've missed or done wrong or how they can possibly go on considering what Jesus is saying is about to happen. And all through these chapters, Jesus is reassuring them that his provision and the Father's plan is sufficient. Here he further reassures them by putting a clear mark of distinction between those who continue to follow and the one whose discipleship has led to nothing, and worse than nothing, to betrayal. There's certainly pruning occurring, even on this fearful night. There are hard words. But the disciples are clean. Why, though, is this analogy of cleanliness thrown into the middle of all of this vine talk? It seems a bit of a non-sequitur, coming out of left field here. This is the third item, a connection back to verse 1. In the understanding of the passages from Isaiah and Psalms, and from what we know of God's covenant with Israel, how was the nation to bear fruit? By remaining clean. By being holy. Set apart from the other nations by their moral obedience to be a light in the darkness. The theme of purity is absolutely central to our understanding of Jewish worship, even to this day. And for Jesus to not only declare the disciples clean, but to then attribute that cleanliness to something outside their actions, indeed to his own spoken word, is huge. Jesus is saying, you are prepared to bear fruit nothing stands in the way you are not in danger of being taken away when things aren't going how we thought they would and even when we're not living how we know we ought it's very natural for us to spiral a bit we want to make sense of it and our worries take us in every direction imaginable many a sincere believer has begun to question, am I even cut out for this? Am I even in the right place? It may be a passing frustration for many, but for some it becomes a serious concern. There's no way we can ever measure up. And honestly, in light of so many other easier and more pleasant looking paths, the call to take up our cross and follow Jesus sometimes looks thoroughly unappealing. Christian, you are cut out for this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then God hasn't just saved you in the dim, distant future. He has made you clean and ready to bear fruit. Now, can you remember all that talk of the heart a little while back? Our hearts may be all over the place, but as disciples of Christ, They are now hearts of flesh, ready to live. They are hearts that can receive instruction from God, that can feel conviction. They are hearts that can be molded by the Holy Spirit in the steady, caring way that a farmer tends his plants. And you're not just cut out. You're grafted in. You've been made a part. You're attached to the vine and this is why we can pin our hopes not on having it all together or trying harder or reaching some new level of understanding but on jesus's command starting in john chapter 15 verse 4. abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide and it will be done for you. How's that for a promise? When we're in line with God's will, when we're close to Him and walking with Him, He's going to clear the way for us to do His will. The command is abide. Abide in me. Stay in me. Continue in me. Dwell with me. Endure in me. Be present with me. Stand in me. That's all it is. It's him. It is Jesus himself. Now, as mankind, created in the image of God, to represent the glory of God, we stand under a mountain of expectation, and there is no lowering of the standard. We were made to be perfect. But knowing that, and knowing that we fall far, far short of it, God has given us the simplest, most beautiful remedy for our terminal sin condition. Jesus, the Christ. How do we get to the place where we want to follow the commands of God? How do we muster up the courage and the conviction to make the changes we know that we ought? How do we take the next step when we're not even sure what it is? Get close to Jesus. Is it really that simple? Yes. Fall in love with Jesus. The person, Jesus. But Jesus isn't here in the flesh. So what? We know very well that the capacity of our minds to know and our hearts to love goes far beyond our senses. The blind, love. We love dear ones in comas who cannot respond. We love those who are far away, who we can have no interaction with. We love those who have passed away. And we love those little ones who we never even got to meet before they were called home. We can know Jesus through the living word of God. And in believing the gospel, we receive the Spirit so that we might have real relationship with him. Not only do we abide in him, he abides in us it is real relationship as real as any other now when our faith is about trying to live a certain way about actions and consequences it's no faith at all but when it's all about christ we pin it all on him we hold on to him we stay with him and then the living comes more and more naturally Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You heard me talk about being a living sacrifice. This is from Romans chapter 12. How does Romans 12 say to do this? By being transformed. When we're near Christ, he changes us. Day by day. He helps us to put off the things of the world and to put on the things of the Spirit, the beautiful, perfect ways. He chisels the rough edges off so that we better and better reflect Him. And this is done relationally. It's not done through commands and guilt and effort. Sin becomes truly sinful to us Because in spending time close to God, through his word and prayer, we learn to love the Lord. And in loving the Lord, we can't bear the thought of hurting him, of grieving him. Sin becomes ugly because God's perfection becomes clearer and clearer. And obedience, obedience becomes a joy. It becomes something we long for. Just as a spouse looks for ways to make their beloved one smile and jumps at the opportunity to be a blessing to them. We want to make God happy with our behavior, knowing that he already loves us, but wanting to please him. Pleasing God takes on greater and greater weight in our lives until no sacrifice is too great, until we are the sacrifice, living and dying only so that we might hear, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It's not to say it's easy. Again, we're broken people, and there is a way to get it wrong, to fail. It's to not abide in Christ. It is to receive all of this and then leave it and walk away. It is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but to confess with your life that you really have no interest in knowing and loving him that in your heart you don't believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is something you need more than air in your lungs. It is being that hard soil from which the Word of God is plucked away by the enemy because it would not receive it. When the basics, the Christian disciplines that you hear preached and taught so often, reading the Word, time in prayer, and true Christian fellowship are routinely neglected, this is a warning sign that something is off between you and God. For many, it's simply their profession of lack of faith. There are a lot of people in churches these days making Jesus the window dressing for their pagan self-worship. Jesus is not a slogan or a club membership or a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus is the bread of life. He is God's provision for a world that will starve without him. He's the light of the world. Without Christ you are blind, you are lost. He's the door of the sheep, the one who protects his own from the predators that want to devour us. He's the resurrection and the life, not church attendance and having a Bible on your shelf and godly parents. He's the good shepherd. He's always leading, always guiding, always hard at work preparing good things for us. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's not on par or in concert with any other doctrine or understanding of how we can be made right with God. Only Jesus. Jesus is the true vine. Abide in him. Abide in him and bear fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It does not say, prove to be my disciples by bearing fruit. It's not pinning our salvation on what we do. It's saying that the evidence of what you already are will be shown when you bear fruit. It will be your witness. It will be your testimony. Today's message is titled, For the Glory of God. That is the result. That is the goal. Pastor Scott said it last week. We are saved for God's glory. And before we end, I want to look at two understandings of what it is to live for the glory of God as the Christian lives out their calling to make disciples, as we at United Baptist fulfill that mission by engaging in and inviting others into worship, fellowship, and service, we glorify God. That is, we bring honor and praise to his name. He gets the credit. We let the world know that we consider God worthy of our devotion and our service, that he is worthy that it is through him and for him that we are who we are and do what we do. In this sense, we are presenting God's glory to the world, making it known, heralding it. But not only this, and perhaps prerequisite to this, we ourselves, as we draw near to Christ and abide in him, become a presentation of God's glory. We confess, as John the Baptist did, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. God takes over our lives. His glory fills us. He is what matters. He carries the most weight in our decision-making. He is the one on whom we pin our hopes. And his glory, his weightiness, his true and inescapable reality is displayed us without our even saying anything, without our even trying. And then when we open our mouth, it's displayed all the more because our lives line up with it, because our self sacrifice points to him, because our joy can only come from him, because our peace is found nowhere else. It is him, his glory lived out in us. Knowing of God and his commands is not enough. All that does is leave us like Israel, under the impossible burden of the law. Knowing God through Christ and drawing near in real relationship to him is the difference. It removes the burden of the law and places us under the yoke of Christ, a burden of righteousness that we bear with his help and guidance. Close to him, it's a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light compared to trying to do it all on our own effort. And while the standard of what we ought to do remains the same, the motivation of what we want to do shifts radically. I know for many this is old, old news, but we can't get away from it. Church, we can't get away from it. We can't coast. We can't assume that because we know Bible verses, we are close to God. It's effort, it's relationship. You cannot be in a marriage and not talk to your spouse. That's no marriage at all. We're the bride of Christ. Are we close to Him? Let's reflect as we close what God has for us in this message. What condition is the soil of your heart in? What challenges do you face in receiving God's word? Maybe you've simply never received his word before. I pray that you would consider Jesus. Consider him from the words of Scripture, the prophecies concerning him, the life he lived, the death he died, his resurrection. It's for you. It's for you that you would look upon Jesus and see the love of God made visible that you would see the way for your heart to be made new and your life to be made whole isn't life a mess aren't we a mess look to Jesus maybe you struggle with obedience you know the good that you ought to do but it's doing it is just hard for whatever reason draw near to Jesus we were never meant to be clean in order to come to God but to come to God and be made clean. And this is as true for the Christian as for the non-Christian. God can turn agonizing obedience into joyful sacrifice. Seek him first and obedience will result. Abide and you will bear fruit. Perhaps you simply aren't feeling it. And I don't mean to say that tritely. We are often worn down Sometimes we just can't muster up the motivation. Is that you? Bring it to Jesus. Sometimes our head knows what we ought to do, but our hearts are so far away that we need to pray, Lord, help me to want to want you. Maybe you're trying to figure out your next step. Maybe you feel like something's missing. Maybe you feel like you don't have anything to offer. Abide. 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 Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. He's bread. He's light. He's protection. He's hope beyond this life and its trials and troubles. He's guidance. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way. Be encouraged this morning, church. Be encouraged because he wants you to come to him. Because he's waiting with open arms. Because there's nothing standing in your way except you. And that can change. We're called to make disciples through worship, fellowship, and service for the glory of God. But we don't accomplish this by our own strength. We don't accomplish it at all. We go to God, rely on Him, trust in Him, and abide in Him. And then Christ in us accomplishes the work through us. That's why we conclude this morning with a song of declaration, celebrating our weakness as the Apostle Paul did. Because in our weakness, his power is made perfect. Let's stand now together and sing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me.